Good morning and welcome. Good to have you here with us today. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. There's also a card in the pew in front of you called a Connect card. We'd love for you to fill that out and let us know of uh, your attendance with us today. And any ways we can connect with you, any ways we can pray for you uh, this week, we'd love to, to do that. You can drop that uh, card in the offering box, which is in the foyer as you uh, exit uh, the building. A couple announcements to let you know about. We are currently, uh, as of today, beginning to work on our pictorial uh, directory, the long-awaited. We've uh, had a few years uh, since we've had one of those. And so we would like for you to give us uh, your information for you to be included in that pictorial directory. Uh, first would be the information, uh, that being any address or, or phone number changes, emails, et cetera. Uh, that form is available online if you get our Friday email, or there is a, uh, a paper copy of that form in the foyer. Uh, secondly, part of that uh, pictorial directory will be pictures. So we need those. Uh, today and for the next three Sundays uh, in the foyer, we'll be taking pictures. If you'd like to get uh, a picture or a family picture there uh, for the pictorial directory, we'd love for you to do that. If you'd rather submit a photo that you already have of your family, you can do that as well. You can do that by email. There's a form online to do that. Or you can bring in a hard copy and we can scan a, scan a copy of it. Uh, either way, or any of those ways, we'd love to get um, that out and into your hands so we can kind of connect faces, uh, names with faces, uh, which has been a bit of a challenge uh, for, for uh, some as we've had some new people coming and hard, hard to keep everyone together. So please uh, help us out uh, with, with, the, with that information. Also this week, uh, CEF, that's Child Evangelism Fellowship, uh, an organization or a ministry that our church has supported for uh, quite some time. They are doing a backyard Bible club or a five-day Bible club is what they call it uh, in Cairo at Blythe Park. And that is from 2 to 3.30. Uh, Blythe Park is where the splash pad is across from uh, the Brentwood. And uh, if you would like to, uh, any more information on that, there's a phone number on the uh, the uh, the FBC Weekly uh, paper in on the Welcome Center. And I don't know what ages that, I'm assuming that's just uh, elementary ages uh, for that. But uh, 2 o'clock to 3.30, uh, the 8th through the 12th, that's this, uh, this coming week. I think those are my things. Pastor Chris, I would like to share a little bit before we hear our call to worship. All right. Well, again, welcome. Glad to see you here this morning. Uh, this last week, had the opportunity to take 12 of our students uh, north uh, for an evangelism boot camp. And they uh, went through a number of uh, sessions teaching and training how to share their faith in, in many different uh, forms, uh, from testimonial to uh, Romans Road type stuff, the, the wordless book, colors, just different, I think five or six different uh, techniques uh, of evangelism training and then I also let them know uh, just after we got there that we got there on Tuesday that on Thursday afternoon we were going to actually go to Gaylord and actually street evangelize should have seen their eyes really big like what and uh, so there's a, a measure of uh, anxiety probably throughout uh, our, our time. But uh, after they got uh, some of that uh, equipment, equipping, uh, I think those nerves subsided a little bit. But uh, 
Then we're doing our, our pre-trip pep talk before we go. I think the nerves came back a little. Uh, but after we got done uh, with that, we circled up and uh, the, the group that went, they were uh, very happy and excited. Probably a little bit because we were done, right? Let's be honest. Um, but then without any prompting by me, they were like, we need to do this again. Let's go to Frankenmuth. Anybody want to go to Frankenmuth? And then they're like already planning their next evangelism trip, all right? So uh, that was pretty exciting to see and hear, and we had some good time in God's Word studying. Uh, and then just uh, being teens, hanging out around the fire. And uh, so I'd encourage you, uh, any of you that are interested, come ask some of them about uh, their time. Uh, and even more than that, say, hey, evangelize to me. Seriously, to, to give them more practice and go through the things that they learned. I, I would encourage you to do that. You hear, you hear what I'm saying, right? Okay, be ready, right? Uh, so I'd encourage you to do that. It, it would be uh, wonderful uh, to share those things with you uh, so that you can encourage and rejoice uh, with them as they continue to grow in their faith as well. Uh, would you stand with me, please, as we open God's word? This is our call to worship this morning. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17. And it reads this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from Psalm chapter 13. Before we read that, let's uh, just pause in prayer. Oh God, would you prepare our hearts this morning to accept your word? Would you silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Psalm chapter 13, verse 1, beginning at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foe rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And God, would you bless us now as we look at your word? Would you help me? And would you help those who listen today to hear what you want, to do what you want, that you would receive the glory in all of it. And we'll give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter 13. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 453. 453. We will be observing communion at the end of this service. Uh, there are communion cups in the foyer. If you didn't see those on the way in, if you'd like to grab one, if you haven't, you may do that whenever you'd like. We have been in a series of messages called Managing 
emotions. And we may wonder, some may wonder, why bother talking about emotions? Uh, We are told that we're not to be controlled by emotions, or emotions don't always tell us the truth, so, so why bother even talking about emotions? Uh, This quotation comes from uh, two authors in a book called The Cry of the Soul. The authors write this, Our emotions are the language of our soul. They are the cry that gives the heart voice. To understand our deepest passions and convictions, we must learn to listen to the cry of the soul. Psalm chapter 13 is an individual lament written by David. Unlike some of the Psalms, we do not have a context or a circumstance in which David is writing this Psalm. What we can know is that it is a a cry of distress, uh, a cry of grief, as David felt abandoned. He felt forsaken by God. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis begins that book by saying this, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. Maybe you can relate with that sort of feeling. Maybe you know what that is like. Maybe you've dealt with grief or are dealing with grief this morning. Maybe you've felt that sense of of restlessness that C.S. Lewis writes. Maybe, like David, you have felt forsaken. And maybe, if you're honest, you have felt forsaken by God. Emotions of grief or sorrow or even anxiety are here identified by David in Psalm 13 as he expresses his his despair. Martin Luther says of Psalm 13 that, that hope despairs in Psalm 13 and despair hopes. That's good, isn't it? Maybe some of us can relate with that first part, that hope despairs. Where's, where's the hope? But yet what we see in David's word is that that despair, in that sense of despair, there is still hope. And we talked about this a a few weeks ago, but the Psalms, uh, if we look at them as a whole, describe three basic experiences that men have with God. One is orientation, one is disorientation, and then reorientation. Orientation is when we see God rightly. It's clear to us. Last week, we, we looked at Psalm chapter 8. Oh, magnify the, the, the Lord. Oh, Lord, oh, let me, <laughs> oh, Lord, our Lord, how, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what he said. That, that's, that's orientation. He sees that rightly. Disorientation is an imbalance. It's a distortion. It's when we don't see God in the world rightly. It's when God stops making sense to us. And then there's reorientation. When we emerge from this disoriented period, when we emerge from the fog, so to speak, with a new perspective, or when we see God in the world more clearly. 
As we come into Psalm chapter 13, we find that David is in a bit of a a disoriented state. We see it first as he laments the absence of God in the first two verses. Listen to it again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You don't have to be much of a Bible scholar to see that there's a repetition there, isn't there, of how long. There are, in fact, four times, four questions beginning with how long, emphasizing here the intensity of his emotions. And he's being honest, right? David is being honest with God. He is telling him how he really feels, He's frustrated, he's angry, he's, he's confused, he's sad, he's anxious, and he's lamenting what he sees and what he feels as the absence of God. And maybe, once again, you can relate with that. Maybe you can relate with saying, Lord, have you forgotten me? Have you turned your face away from me? Am I going to have sorrow in my heart all day? Are my enemies exalting? What is going on here? Some of us might feel that this kind of honesty is a little, well, too honest. But God welcomes our honesty. Because guess what? Whether you say it or not, he already knows it. So why not admit it to him? Why not bring our honesty to God? The quote goes like this, greater honesty with God cultivates greater intimacy with God. And here's what we see with David, an honest, an honest response to his circumstance. Well, in these four questions, we actually find the four causes for his grief. And the first is an ongoing struggle. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Right? When, when we feel that God's presence is continually absent, we are prone to believe that it will be permanently that way. This, this is not the only person in the Bible who, who's had this kind of question. We see it elsewhere in, in the Psalms. We see it in the book of Lamentations. This sense of, I don't, I don't think he's present, and I think that this is a, a permanent condition. Andrew Fuller writes, It is not under the sharpest, but the longest trials, that we are most in danger of fainting. And he gives this example. When Job was accosted with evil tidings in quick succession, succession at the beginning of the book, right? When, when all these bad things were happening to him, he bore it with becoming fortitude. And he was, he was very, very clearly trusting the Lord. But when, when he could see no end to his troubles, he sunk under them. As you keep reading the book of Job, Job starts to get into this condition of, of lamenting his own existence of questioning where, where, where is God at all. It's not the sharpest, but the longest trials that are the greatest danger. David had an ongoing struggle of whatever degree which caused him to question God's presence. Secondly, we see an absence of blessing in the second question. How long will you hide your face from me? What David had once experienced, blessing, He was now no longer experiencing in the same way at presence, which caused him to say, why are you hiding your face from me? And how long will you keep doing that? 
he felt that God was hiding from him. Maybe you've felt that way. Maybe you've felt that way when you've prayed and you get no response, seemingly. Maybe when things don't seem to be going your way, you might question, has God hidden his face from me? We spoke about Job earlier, but, but Job, in fact, felt this way. In chapter 13, verse 35, he says a very similar thing about God hiding his face from him. And in chapter 23, he gives this description. Behold, I go forward, and he is not there, referring to God. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I do not see him. Job's being honest. I'm looking around, and I, I, don't, I don't see it. I, I, don't, I don't feel that God is there. And yet, Job, at least at this point, had the awareness to add this very important verse, verse 10 of chapter 23. But he, God, knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, or when he has tested me, I shall come out as gold. Right? Even Job understood that there's a difference between what I feel and what is real. Even though I cannot see God, even though I cannot feel God, even though I, I don't see him at work, doesn't, does not mean that he is not at work. We must not mistake the silence of God as the absence of God. We see this throughout the Bible. We see it in, in times where, where it seems as though God is not answering. And yet we know it's not true. We know that God was not absent from the life of Job. God was orchestrating all of those events. We know that God was not absent, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that God was not absent, the Apostle Paul, when he prayed for the thorn of the flesh to be removed and did not receive the answer he wanted. God's absence is not confirmed in his silence. Well, thirdly, we see verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David here describes his battle with, with dark thoughts or uncontrollable emotions. In the ESV it says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? That, that might be kind of difficult for us to get our hands around. What, what does that actually even mean? I, I find the NIV's translation a helpful des description to say this, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? How long? How long do I have to keep on thinking the things that I'm thinking? How, how long is this going to plague me? They says sorrow in my heart or grief or anguish, right? Which are all the opposite of joy, right? Grief, sorrow, anguish, all that is the antithesis of joy. How long do I have to have this sorrow in my heart? The heart is the seat of the emotions. How long do I have this in my heart? All the day. Meaning day and night or, or every day. How long is this going to go on? David's continual sorrows were cause for his despair. That's how he felt. That's how he felt. That, 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 that's what he thought and he told it to the Lord. In our grief, we can think that, that this will never end. Right? These thoughts, this, this sorrow, this sadness, this grief will never end. Life will never be good again. Right? That, that's what grief can do to us. And David is admitting that as a cause for his sadness, for his despair, 
Finally, he gives the fourth in verse 2. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Uh, apparently, David's, in David's estimation, his enemies had been successful. They, they, they were winning. The, the bad guys were winning. This takes us back to Psalm 73 when Asaph is saying, Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? This doesn't make any sense. And as we talked about then, our perspective matters, doesn't it? What it looks like to us is not what it is always. That yes, the, the wicked do prosper in this life at times. But in the bigger picture, in the grand picture, in light of eternity, the righteous will be judged. The unrighteous will be judged. And the righteous will be rewarded. And God is the righteous judge who will, who will one day make all things right. What we're seeing here in these first two, two verses is, is David admitting his feelings. We actually even see a, a bit of an accusation against God here. God, what are you doing to me? What's happening to me? But then in verses 3 and 4, we see David um, take a turn, turn a corner, if you will, from accusing to then asking. Look at verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now David makes three petitions here. And we see it in, in the three imperatives in verse 3. And they are, consider, answer, and light up. Some of your Bibles might say give light, or enlighten, or lighten. But the first is to consider, or to behold, or to look at me, right? listen to me. Maybe you've had a, a child sit on your lap and you're talking to someone else and they quite literally take your face and they move your face to look at them. Right? Maybe you've all experienced that. Right? What are they saying? Saying, pay attention to me. I, I, have, I have something I want you to, to see or to know or to do for me. Consider me. Listen. That's what, this is what David is saying. He's saying to God, Consider, David understood that God's look expressed a sense of his favor. So God, look upon me, but not just look upon me. What's the next word? Answer me. Answer me who? Oh, Lord, my God. Not just look, but respond. Not just look, but do something. Now, this might not seem like much for him to say, consider and answer me. But this prayer was a demonstration of David's faith. Why? Because he is praying to, to the Lord, my God, personal, and he is believing that this God could actually consider and answer him. That is faith. When, when we are in a, in a condition of, of grief and of sorrow, and we say to God, God, would you, would you look upon me? Would you answer me? Would you hear my prayer? That is faith. You might say, that doesn't sound like much faith. It doesn't matter how much faith it is. The issue is not the depth of the faith. The issue is the object of the faith. And here David, in his despair, in his hopelessness, is still clinging to someone, to God. He shows his faith 
because of who he prayed to. This one who would answer him. This one who he had a personal relationship. This one who would hear him. This one who would actually never leave him. David says, thirdly, in verse 3, light up my eyes, or give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lighten, or enlighten, or restore brightness to my eyes. David was asking to see. He was asking for wisdom. He was asking for perspective. Uh, The dimness here is, is said to denote approaching death. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. David may be referring to death, or it may be a metaphor for for suffering and depression. David mentioned, uh, again, his enemies in the rest of verse 3, and his concern for his own faithfulness. Excuse me, the rest of verse 4. Look at verse 4. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. So David is saying, not, not only answer me, not only give me light so that so I don't suffer anymore, but, but so that my enemies don't mock me, so that my enemies don't think they're, they're getting the, the better of me, so that the enemies don't think that they're winning by my being shaken, because I am shaken, the end of verse 4. Shaken here means to slip or, or to fall, but, it, but it's, it indicates a crisis of faith. We saw that back in chapter 73 as well. To be shaken, one one commentator says, is to waver in faith and lose confidence in God. David wasn't only concerned about his his physical or mental well-being. He was concerned about his spiritual well-being. He was concerned that he might not remain faithful. Consider and answer me. Give light so that I'm not in this suffering. So that my, my enemies don't think they're winning. So that I remain faithful. Suffering can cause us to do one of two things, right? It can cause us to lean into God. When we suffer, we say, God, help me. Or it can cause us to, to fall away from God. We might say, I, I, I can't believe in a God who would. Right? Suffering can do both of those things to us. It can cause us to, to see God and to rely on him for faithfulness, or it can lead us to faithlessness. What we see here in David is he was petitioning God, petitioning the Lord for an intervention. This is an act of faith we see in David. Asking for wisdom that he might remain faithful even in the midst of his grief. That's where he was. In grief, right? He had moved, though, from accusing God and from questioning God, now to petitioning him, to asking for him to, to hold him, to hold him fast, to help him to remain faithful. One theologian writes, at this point, faith has climbed out of the lowest depths of despair, where it had well nigh perished, into the full sunlight of godly hope. And now it can wait for the help to come, for it is sure that it will not fail him. This is the trajectory of, of David in this psalm. We ought to note, though, and to recognize that the, mo- the, the movement of David in, in these verses, this change that we're seeing, when does this occur or how does this occur? In prayer. In prayer. That's where it occurs. How does David move from disorientation to orientation? 
How does he move from confusion and anger to what we'll see in verses 5 and 6? How does he do that? By going to God in prayer. God works through prayer. It's not just the working of, of changing our circumstances. In fact, that's only part of what prayer does. First and foremost, God, what does God do through prayers? He changes us. Pastor and author Timothy Keller has written this, prayer brings you into God's presence where your shortcomings are exposed. It's actually the presence of God where we actually uh, find where we're lacking, right? He continues, prayer brings perspective. It shows the big picture. It gets you out of the weeds. It reorients you to where you really are. Right? And that's what David's doing. He's taking his grief. He's taking his sorrow. He's taking his anguish, all of which are true. His feelings of abandonment, his feelings of, of, of being forsaken. And what does he do with it? He takes it to God. He said, God, this is how I'm feeling. Would, would, you, would you do something about that? Would you help me with that? Would you help me to, to not go where that's leading me to go? The process, and it is a process of moving from disorientation to reorientation, continues in verses 5 and 6 where David declares his confidence in the Lord. Look at it. But I have trusted in the steadfast love, in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Lamenting takes time. Right? Grief takes time. It is a process. It is not something we, we, we get through quickly. We ought not to say to someone to stop being sad. We ought not to say to someone they ought to stop being anxious or to stop grieving. That's unhelpful. We can point them to the hope. But it is a process by which we get there. We must work through the process of acknowledging our condition, acknowledging our feelings, taking it to the Lord, and seeing again with new eyes who God is. Right here, this chapter is, is six verses long. That's not very long. Right? I've talked more words than this chapter is. And I'm going to talk more words in this chapter again in the time we have remaining. Right? But, but the point is, is what? The point is that we have no concept of how long it took David to get from verse 1 to verses 5 and 6. There's, there's no timeline here. Often these psalmists summarize for us their, their, their movement or their, pro, their process. And it's a summarization. Those four questions that David spoke, who knows how long he struggled with those questions? Consider, answer, and, and give me light. Those are pretty quick prayers. How long did he pray those prayers? How many nights did he pray for God to answer him? How many nights did he ask for God to give him sight? We don't know. It takes time. There is no indication that this was as quick as we might see here in six verses. So we ought to be patient. We ought to recognize that, that, that we didn't get where we are overnight with our sorrows, with our grief, with our feelings. So we're probably not going to get out of there overnight either. We, we need to, to relearn some things. We need to be reoriented to some things. 
We need truth, and therefore we bring it to the Lord. Verse 5 says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Or, or, this word but, uh, but instead, uh, or in spite, we could say, in spite of all that I've experienced, all that I'm feeling, all that I've felt, even, even in all of that, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Even with what he felt, he was confident. And we see three things that he was confident. God's love, God's salvation, and God's blessing. Right? This confidence, again, was an act of faith because of who he's putting his confidence in. Right? David is not trying harder here. He's not read a verse and just go and trust the Lord. That's not what David is doing. David had to work through the process. And he began with being honest about where he was. Some of us are not honest about where we're at with the Lord. We know where we think we should be. We know what everyone else thinks, thinks that we should be. But where are you actually at? What are the questions you're actually asking? Be honest about it. And God will meet you there. And when you ask for help, God will meet you where you're at. David was lamenting. Then he moved to asking and finally, here we see him confessing confidence. We might add that nowhere in Psalm 13 do we see that David's circumstances radically changed. When he gets to verses 5 and 6, it's not as though he didn't have enemies anymore. It's not as though his sorrows all went away. It's not as though he never had a, an uncontrollable emotion again or thought. But instead, what he did is he reject, re, redirected his thinking, redirected his attention to what he knew to be true, not just what felt true. What are those things? He trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord. His trust wasn't just a trust. He was trusting in the Lord. That's really, really important. A lot of people say they, they, have, they have faith. I have faith. It actually doesn't matter if you have faith. Sorry. You could say you have faith. That doesn't matter. The object of the faith is what matters. So David's saying he trusts. He trusts in that there's love or something. No, no. He trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord. The specifics matter. Who, whose love is this? It's the Lord's love. It is steadfast. Or it is, it is uh, the loving kindness, some of your Bibles might say. Or unfailing love. This is the Hebrew word hesed. And it means loyalty or covenant love. This is the love of the covenant God of Israel. This is the love of God saying, I love you because I love you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving you not because you're lovable. I'm loving you because, what does the Bible say? God is love. Like, this is not a love that is conditioned upon your response. God chooses to love whom he chooses to love. And whatever we experience, Christian, you can know this, that nothing can or will ever separate you from the unfailing love of God. And so David recognizes and puts his trust in a God who loves him unconditionally. And Christian, you can know that. Now, if you're not a Christian... You actually can't know that. Does God love the whole world? Yes, he loves the whole world in that sense. But God's love for, for his people is different. 
It is different. But here David is trusting in the steadfast love. In the New Testament, we find, what does Paul say? For I'm sure of this, Romans chapter 8, I'm sure of this, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. David was trusting in God. We who live on this side of the cross now see how God has shown us his love through his son. And because of that, because of what he has done, because of our response to him through repentance and faith, we can know this steadfast love and put our trust in it as well. But that's not all. David expresses faith not only in trusting but in rejoicing. The rest of verse 5 says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The rejoicing again is in what? Your salvation. The salvation of the Lord. Rejoicing or exalting in the salvation of the Lord. Not necessarily exalting in the change of circumstance. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says that we are to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. See, rejoicing does not mean the absence of sorrow, but the presence of the Lord. That's very, very different, isn't it? If we only rejoice when our sorrows are absent, then that's not rejoicing in the Lord. That's rejoicing in the absence of problems and sorrow. But that's not what David says. That's not what Paul said. We rejoice where? In your salvation. One commentator says of salvation here, this is the whole well-being of God's child. No matter what we experience in this life, we can know that God has acted on our behalf to save us. That God actually has saved. He actually has come to save in a greater way than David even knew in Psalm 13, God would soon, or later, send his son. To what? To save sinners from the penalty of sin. And we rejoice greatly that is something worth rejoicing in. That God has saved. That God has come to save through his son. But you can only rejoice in God's salvation if you have experienced God's salvation. So this morning, for those who have, who have come to Christ who have seen him as the Savior that they need, who have repented of their sins and trusted him by faith alone, you can rejoice this morning. But if you sit here today and your confidence is not in the Lord, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never placed your faith in Christ and only in Christ, then this is not something you can rejoice in. It's actually not something to rejoice in for you. But it can be. It absolutely can be. The New Testament assures us that, that whosoever would believe can be saved. That if you will repent and believe the gospel, you will be saved. If you confess with your heart the Lord Jesus and believe in, confess with the Lord, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can know that this morning. You can know the salvation, the subsequent relationship that we have with the Father which then leads to a life of obedience to his word. Well, thirdly and finally, David gives his last 
expression of faith in verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The song that David sang was to the Lord. Right? His singing was directed to the Lord. And for what reason? Because he has dealt bountifully or because he has been good or because he has been generous or because of the blessing of God shown to him. Christian, we have much to sing about. We have much to sing about, for God has been good to us. Here, the love of God, the salvation of God, the blessing of God. David is responding in faith here. Because all of these are built on the person and the character of the covenant God, the Lord, Yahweh. All of these are based on him. It's not just a love. It's God's love. It's not just a salvation, it's the salvation of the Lord. It's not just having good things happen to you. It's how God has been generous to us. A paraphrase of verses 5 and 6 goes like this. But since I trust in your unfailing love, my heart rejoices in your salvation. May I sing to the Lord. He is good. He has been good to me. Another writer summarizes Psalm 13 like this. David's trials were such that he wondered how long could he hold on. But trials produce endurance, and the outcome is joy and singing. Now, maybe this morning you've experienced your fair share of trials. Maybe you've had your times of grief or are currently having your time of grief and sorrow. Maybe you have felt abandoned, abandoned by others, abandoned by the Lord. Maybe you felt alone. Maybe there have been times when you've been honest enough to question God. Maybe some of you are there this morning. Psalm chapter 13 invites us that we don't have to be controlled or defined by our sorrows and our griefs. They don't have to control us. They are real. But what does David do? How does he process his grief? He takes it to the Lord. Again, greater honesty with God cultivates greater intimacy with God. He took his, his problems, he took his grief, he took his sorrow to the Lord. And then what? He asked for help. And then what? He committed to trust God. It's in prayer that we see God rightly. It's in prayer that we recognize that we might not see the world quite clearly. And we need God to, to enlighten our eyes and when he does, we see his love, he see, we see his salvation, and we see his goodness. And as we come to the table morning, this morning, that's just what we see, isn't it? God's love, God's salvation, and God's goodness. See, in love, we see the one who was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. In love, we see the one we see the one who purchased our salvation so that we might rejoice in God's good gift. We see the one who can not only identify with our sorrows because he is the man of sorrows, but the one who generously comforts us through his spirit that is with us. Do you see his love? his salvation, his goodness in all our trials, in all our sufferings, in all our sorrows, we can know that we are never alone. And as we observe the cup and the bread, we are offered a time to remember God's work through his son 
on our behalf, to recall that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Now, many of us long for the day when Christ returns. And we may wonder, in the words of David, how long? How long, Lord, until you return? And though we do not know and cannot know, we can pray along with the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And Father, we thank you once again for your Son. Your Son, through whom we see your love, through whom brought salvation, and who is the goodness of God given to us. May our hope, may our hope not despair today, but may our despair hope, hope in who you are and what you've done through your Son, for which we give you all the praise and all the glory, and in whose name we pray, amen. Oh God, you raise